Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. We're going to look to the word here this morning, again, Matthew chapter 23. Uh, We've come now in this week to the end of a week that we've called Love Your Neighbor Week. It's the first time we've done that, and our intention is that it would be an annual event. And I want to thank many of you for getting involved in various ways over the past week, from attending uh, the services that we had in an effort to learn more about the ministry partners we have here in our community, to in some cases putting some of those things into action, whether at Providence Home at the beginning of the week, or uh, yesterday many came out to do some neighborhood outreach going door to door and and feeding some of our neighbors yesterday to uh, even unexpected things like uh, many of you helping with Dot Merle and their move over the last several days. These are very practical ways in which we love and serve our neighbors. And the fact is the opportunity to do so uh, are endless. Each and every day we, we are confronted with ways in which we can practically love and serve people. And, and that truly is the reality that it's often less about a formal planned event, uh, but rather about the daily leading of and obedience to the Holy Spirit as He shows us ways that we can show the love of Christ to those who are in need. As we consider last Sunday's message, the words of Jesus Himself stating that on two commandments, On two key commandments from the law, hang all of the law and prophets. Jesus, in other words, says to us, God's word and his will is fulfilled in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This, folks, is to be our aim and really in the pattern of the cross, we see, we see imagery there. In the pattern of the cross, we must first make sure that the vertical relationship, the upright portion, that's about the relationship between us and God, that that is right. That our love for God is as it should be. That with all of who we are, we are surrendered to Christ. That we're living for Him and allowing Him full rule and reign in our hearts. And with that then, when that relationship is right, that then comes the horizontal. That the relationships on the horizontal can then function as they should, that we can love God and love our neighbor, but it starts first with Him. The fact of the matter is, when any relationship in your life is not functioning as it should be, it should really serve as a a check engine light, an, an indicator, a warning. Is your relationship right with the Lord? Are you serving Him and and loving Him and abiding in Him? We should always go to that first. And so then, as we come to the close of of Matthew 22, and the close of this, this special week that we've been in, where we've emphasized these things, just like Jesus begins to recognize the hypocrisy that exists as is represented by the Pharisees, and, and the reality that, that this pattern is not always lived out. It's, it's, not, always, it's not always done this way. Here, here what we see is that Jesus begins to address that, that, that even those who claim to do these things perfectly, those who claim to be living this out, to have the perfect relationship with God, that they're not loving their neighbor. They're, they're not fulfilling these things that we are called to in Scripture. And so as, as we look at this, We must be willing to search our own hearts 
and, and consider, do, do we possess some of those same traits? Do we, like the Pharisees, have a hard heart that's, that's not right with God or, or that fails to love our neighbor as we should? As we come here into chapter 23 and we consider what is truly a scathing rebuke, uh, there, there's this indictment of religious hypocrisy that happens between Jesus and the Pharisees. Rather than seeing it as a rebuke simply on religious leaders some 2,000 years ago, we must be honest and ask, is this a truth that describes me today? Because the very sobering reality is that as Jesus addresses those who talk about the things of God, who profess to know the Word of God, who are stating that they're seeking to obey God and to live their lives for Him, He's also talking to those very same people who are headed toward eternal damnation. Earlier this week, uh, on Wednesday night, Pastor Jimmy during the announcements mentioned that you can go back and you can view Wednesday night's teaching with uh, Brian Braddock from House of Hope. And we watched a video prior to that and we uh, encountered some, some individuals in that video, one in which uh, made a phrase. He, he, he said this phrase a few times. Some of you have tried to learn how to repeat it now. I'll do my best. I have to kind of, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but I think it's fairly fitting. He said this, he said, your talk talks and your walk walks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. Clear as can be, right? <laughs> you see, what he's pointing at there, what he's getting at, what we must be willing to ask ourselves is, what is my walk saying? Here's what I'm saying with my mouth, but what is my life communicating? What is my life demonstrating? As we consider chapter 23, we must not look at it as a narrative of Jesus rebuking the Pharisees, but rather look at questions that we can ask ourselves the worst thing we can do is dismiss this chapter as historical and not be willing to evaluate our own lives and our own hearts. And so, as we catch up with Jesus here, we know that he's still in the temple. He's been going back and forth with the religious leaders, answering a series of questions and demonstrating his absolute and divine authority. And with a final question there at the end of chapter 22, a question that they can't answer, Jesus has silenced his opposition. He's landed a final knockout blow and they will question him no more. Now with his opposition silenced, with multitudes now looking and listening, marveling at his authority, Jesus begins to release some of the most intense and dreadful statements that he has made in all of his earthly ministry. And once again, it's for us to take these and use them as a mirror against our own hearts and to ask, Lord, is this me? If you would, agree with me once more in prayer. Father, as we look now to your word, we recognize that it is a difficult passage, Lord not in terms of understanding so much as, Lord, receiving it, considering it, Lord, and allowing in some cases, Lord, the convicting work that you desire to do to be to begin in our hearts. And may we remember, Lord, as we, as we begin this process of going through this chapter, Lord, that conviction is a good thing. That conviction, Lord, causes us to run to you. Condemnation is not from you. Condemnation causes us to run from you, but conviction brings us into a closer and right relationship with you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do a necessary work here today in each of our hearts, Lord. Reveal what you desire to reveal, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Beginning there in verse 1 in chapter 23, then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers." Jesus here embarks on a series of questions. Uh, And depending on how you count them, what we'll see here is about four direct questions. And then he's going to shift his focus directly to the scribes and Pharisees and share eight woes, eight condemnations before he concludes and departs from the temple. And here in this first question, what he reveals is that the Pharisees do not practice what they preach. So the first question before us today, if you're taking notes, would be this. Do we practice what we preach? You see, the Pharisees sat in Moses' seat, and it means that in the temple and throughout the synagogues, the teacher would sit in a seat of authority as they read from the law. Now the word that was read was to be obeyed. That's God's word. As his word is read, we must listen and we must do what it says. But the actions of those who read it, the Pharisees, Jesus says, were not to be followed because their life didn't match up. You couldn't look at their life and say, I want to live that way because the way that they were living was inconsistent with the word of God. The Apostle Paul writes in... uh, the book of Romans, in chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, Paul writes this. He says, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and you rest on the law, and you make your boast in God, and you know His will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. I'll pause there for a moment and say what what Paul is recognizing here is individuals who say that they know the word and can teach the word and as such are able to lead people. The same should be said of Christians today, that we know the word and that though he is the light of the world, that he uses us. And, And in our knowledge of the word and in our obedience to him, that we can help to lead other people, that we can disciple people, we can teach people. But if we say that we do that, then we also should consider what Paul says here of Uh, similar claims by these teachers, that in verse 21, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You see, we must recognize and consider the fact that as we share the truth of God's word, that it should bear out in our lives. And so listen, do you live it out? Does your walk match your talk? And we know that it better because as we've learned, your walk is a lot louder. So much we know about learning in general is that it is caught, not taught. And so consider, what of your children? What of those in your immediate sphere of influence? What are they catching from your life? And so as we consider these things, as we consider walking out our faith, 
we must also consider the motive for it. Verse 5, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. And so the second question that we must ask of ourselves is this. Do we seek man's approval or God's approval? What is it that you're after in your obedience? You see, of the Jewish people, this was more of a cultural thing for them at time. It was rooted in Scripture, but it's not something we've adopted today. The phylacteries, you don't probably use that word very often. The phylactery was a, was a wooden box that was inscribed with Scripture that was uh, especially amongst the most devout worn on the forehead. It was intended to put God's Word on their forehead between their eyes always. Uh, they would wear it on their wrists as well. They would have tassels on their robes. Jesus Himself had tassels on the hem of His garment. But for some, they would make these bigger and better. And more appealing, imagine if I had a bigger box on the front of my forehead. Would you then think, boy, this guy's got to be super spiritual, right? Oh, excuse me as I walk by. I've got to lift my robe a little bit so I can get my large tassels through, right? Look at me, everyone. The places of honor, the serving, if you will, in the, in the mega ministries, doing the the flashy work. And we can easily see how these things begin to creep in even still today. Whether it's the the trendy religious tattoos of the day out there for all to see or the ostentatious cross necklace that declares, I am a Christian and a really big one, right? Or or it's the celebrity pastor status perhaps, right? That, That many are seeking after. Or the trendy clothing of the worship leader. Yes, these things come into play where we identify what is a cultural norm, an accepted cultural practice in the church, and then we begin to build on it and make it bigger and bigger. And the question we must ask ourselves is, do you want people, based on what they see, what they observe, the, 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 the things that you're adorned with, to then think that, oh, well, this person must have their spiritual walk altogether. Or do you simply care about whether God knows that your heart is right before Him and that you are living your life in obedience to Him no matter who takes notice? That should be our aim. Verse 8 we see, but you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, And you are all, brethren, do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. As we read this interesting and often overlooked passage, if you find yourself asking, well then, amongst various denominations, probably chief of which is the Catholic Church, the priest is referred to as father, and, and the pope is referred to as the holy father. And, and, and is that right? Should that be so? And the answer would be no, absolutely not. I truly do not understand why many people don't understand this, why this has become so accepted today. The fact of the matter is, these passages here, this is not hidden language. This isn't difficult to understand. This isn't parable. What Jesus is saying is don't assign such superior titles to earthly men. Jesus himself referred only to God as Father. Why would we assign such a title to men in the context of spiritual authority? That I don't know. 
And, and I'm not suggesting here, by the way, that the term for an earthly biological father is wrong, okay? I think there's some nuances there and some, de- and some uh, understanding of definitions. But what I would say is this, don't you dare assign to me or any pastor or anyone who's in a position of spiritual authority some super special title. Now, what, what of the term pastor? Pastor, I think many agree, is probably a, a fair title, insofar as it describes the function of the role rightly, in that a pastor is intended to be an under-shepherd, one under Christ, responsible for serving the body of Christ. Not to be placed in superiority over them. It says here that I am your brother, that we are all the brethren. That, and so probably a more applicable title for every one of us would be brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. And you hear that within some denominations, and I think it's an effort to align with this. The fact of the matter is we are. We are brothers and sisters who together serve, love, and worship our Lord and Savior Jesus and God the Father. And when we do so rightly, we each do so from the places that God has gifted and called us, functioning then as the body of Christ, no one above another. So we then ask, is the question before us here, is what we need to evaluate just the issue with titles? Well, no. I think the question before us, the third question is this, do we view others as equal or do we see ourselves as superior? You see, titles do a funny thing. They often cause people to think a whole lot more of themselves than they ought to. Just because of the piece of plastic on the office door or the ink on the business card or the letters that may come after your name or even perhaps the check mark on Twitter when you've reached a certain status or your number of followers. Remember, such qualities or characteristics or titles may lend themselves to credibility, but never superiority. Let me explain that. If I'm going in for surgery, you better believe I want to see MD after that person's name. If they look at me and they say, ah, just a formality, didn't technically pass med school, but you'll be okay, I'm going to think this is, this is a problem, right? I want to see those letters for the sake of knowing that they're credible but I wouldn't expect for them to look at me as inferior. And we need to be careful with that. And so, if when you look at someone, and I'm asking you to be honest, think about the people in your life that maybe you have at times looked at and thought something ill of. If when you look at someone, you have even the slightest feeling that you are better than they are, take that thought captive and put it to death. Because in no way, shape, or form, no matter their circumstances, is any individual better than another. But all have been created in the image of God and are gifted with unique purpose. And so in verse 11, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so number four here, the question we must consider really stems from this statement. And the question it becomes for us to consider is this, do we serve others with humility? If in fact you do not look at others with inferiority and yourself as superior, you will be able to serve with humility. And in so doing, God will lift you up. Rest assured, He knows your heart. And quite frankly, often those who you are serving, they know your heart as well. 
When we seek to serve others and do so from a place of, of look at me, look at the good thing that I'm doing, look at how I'm helping this person, the truth often comes through. It's when we, with humble hearts and right understanding of our equality, no matter the situation, can begin then to genuinely build relationships and be used to bring about life change. I heard a story earlier this week, I shared it with some of you on Wednesday night, and it absolutely struck me. This individual who was speaking to me about the way in which a church had once engaged him. And the church, with the greatest of intentions and their initial interaction with him, let him know of all the ways that they were going to help him. At which point he politely refused or rejected their offer, saying, I'm not in need of all your help. I'd just like to have a partner, to have a friend, to somebody who'd be willing to engage in some things with me. And we might say those are nuances there, but it really spoke to me in terms of how that individual received it, right? That we would come into somebody's life and just say, man, I want to serve. I want to be your friend, right? I want to walk alongside you. And also understanding that when we do that, there's a lot that we then learn ourselves. Now at this point, as I mentioned earlier, this is where Jesus begins to transition. Away from these questions to the masses, and more so to these woes that he uh, issues to the Pharisees. Eight of them in total. He begins to address them directly here. And in verse 13 we read this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! Jesus is going to repeat this over and over again. Eight times he's going to say it in this section. And what he's saying is, I am pronouncing judgment upon you fakes. You pretenders. This is not feel-good language. They were not like, oh, tell me more, right? There was a fence that was likely happening here. As he says to them, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. You neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Whoa, that's some heavy language. There's three judgments here. What is Jesus saying? What he's communicating here is that through the actions of the Pharisees, through their legalism, through their failure to see the truth, through their taking advantage of people for personal gain, they have turned people away from God. They've blinded people to God's truth. And such still happens today. From the false teacher who devours a widow's house by taking her money through false promises to the false teachers that share a false gospel of health and wealth, but nothing about their need for repentance or the promise of a better life in heaven. Not a better life now. From our own rules and regulations that are simply not rooted in Scripture. These serve to hinder people from knowing His grace and His mercy. To even the long prayers, which could be parallel with Simple errors of superiority that cause people to think this. Oh, I'm just not good enough. I'm not like them. I don't have it together enough to come to Christ. Which are lies from the enemy. We must ask ourselves, am I winning people to Christ? Or is my hypocrisy turning them away? 
Do people look at my life and see someone who is different? See someone who is changed? Can with my actions I demonstrate that I both know and have spent time with Jesus? And welcome others then to do the same no matter what they've done or where they've been. Does that mean that I have it all together and that I'm perfect? No, that's exactly the point. But that you're willing to say, I don't have it all together. And I'm not perfect. But I know one who is. And he's changed my life. In verse 16 we read, Woe to you, blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform the temple that sanctifies the gold. And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore he who swears by the altar, swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Now the fourth woe here, or condemnation uh, it can be a little confusing what what is it that Jesus is saying what he is addressing here is the tendency amongst the religious leaders to establish loopholes for sin and for the breaking of oaths you see we don't often set out and make an agreement with someone saying that we swear on the gold of the altar right it's just not in our common vernacular but we do make promises perhaps within the context of scripture we also seek to up, uphold it in most cases, unless perhaps we find that uh, maybe we're able to say, well, this is kind of a gray area. Well, you know, a lot of people are doing this. It's pretty common in the church today. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. You see, what was happening here in effect, what Jesus was addressing was a common process where they would create loopholes for sin and in essence, as they're making an agreement, and maybe we're more familiar with this, you're making an agreement and you go, oh, got my fingers crossed behind my back, right? You didn't know it, did you? We were making an agreement, but by golly, I don't have to uphold that agreement. That's really kind of what's happening here. And so as it pertains to us, we often find ways to take Scripture and to misinterpret it a little bit, to twist it, to suit us. We maybe fail to do a good study, and then we use His Word to justify sinful behavior. What we must do when we see this is Jesus says, here, listen, you swear by this, you swear by the throne of God and Him who sits on it, is we must say, this is His Word. It's His Word. And we must endeavor to keep it, even if it's hard, even if it's difficult. And when we fail, which we will, we don't make an excuse to justify it, but rather recognize that we fell short. We repent, that is, we turn around and we seek to do it the right way. That's how God wants us to respond, not by saying, well, maybe it doesn't really apply. Jesus continues, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. I love Jesus and his hyperbole. To picture somebody's like, oh, there's a gnat in my drink, right? Let me strain that out real quick, but then they're munching on a camel. Right? It just sort of gives this picture of like, you aren't getting this. 
And the question really we should consider here as it pertains to us is maybe, have you ever felt pretty good about yourself when, say, you paid your tithe or uh, maybe you gave towards a charity, you gave towards a, a, a building fund of some kind, and you thought, yeah, I'm really doing it. And meanwhile, injustices in your own fellowship, in your own congregation, injustices in your own community continue to go unchecked. What are the things that are really hard to do? Like loving your neighbor, caring for widows and orphans, serving those that maybe are hard to love. What Jesus is saying is that these are the weightier matters. He's not discounting the other actions, but he's saying, don't be so inclined to check the box and say you've done your part. When I call you to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God, to serve those who are in need. And so you see, we love things that are easy. I love things that are easy. Anybody who says they don't like easy things, I just don't quite understand it. Right? There's whole ad campaigns built off of that. Remember the easy button? That was easy, right? I mean, people love it. And we're prone to it. We're prone to the things that are easy. We're prone to the things that are clean. We're pro- prone to the things that we can easily check off the list. Oh, I, I did a good thing. And I don't mean to mock that. But what Jesus is calling the Pharisees here to, and, and to us as well, is to really evaluate, am I willing to do the hard things? Am I willing to get my hands dirty? Am I willing to meet someone right where they are? Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, this morning when I got up and I had that first cup of coffee, man, it's a good cup of coffee, the first one. Anybody with me, right? That first, there's something special about that first one. And you know, I grabbed my favorite mug, use it all the time, And you know, as I began to drink, I'm pretty sure that the remnants of the previous cup of coffee were still in there. Tasted a little moldy. Some bits of it even. You know, they had to try it. What was that? But you know, the outside was squeaky clean. So what does it matter? Just keep on drinking it, right? And you know, this week I I bought a new car. Oh man, I've always loved this car. Been looking forward to this moment. It's a good-looking vehicle. But you know, the thing is, is there's no seats in it. In fact, there's not even an engine that comes in it. No interior at all. But let me tell you, I washed that thing in my driveway. It's looking good. The neighbors, they drive by and they think, oh man, that guy bought a nice car. Right? You picking up when I'm laying down? My wife would want to, me to tell you that the, the cup is, was clean, okay? It was actually clean. <laughs> Listen, guys, God cares little for what the outside looks like. As clean and as good-looking as the outside may be, what He cares about is the inside, the condition of your heart. When we stand before Him on Judgment Day, He is not going to say, well... 
You never gave your life to me. You never repented of your sin. You never recognized your need for a Savior. You never demonstrated dependence on me. But you know what? You went to church and you told a lot of people that you went to church and you gave some money to that church and and boy, you looked good doing it. So come on in. That's not how it works. He doesn't care about the outward appearance. He cares about your inward holiness. That you are a person who is redeemed, sanctified, set apart for His work and His glory and His purposes. And that when He looks at you, He doesn't see the trappings of the world, but He sees the blood of Jesus Christ upon you. He sees His Son. That's what gets you in. And so many people are going through life and everything looks fine, but on the inside they're dying. And only you know. Other people see what your life looks like. Some people are fooled. But we must ask, does it match your heart? Because don't be mistaken, you can't fool God. Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. And and what he's saying here is exactly what our tendency is to do, to look back on these situations and to say, that's not me. That's not us. Oh, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't be like the Pharisees. We wouldn't cry out just hours almost from this point, crucify Him, crucify Him. No, we would not do that. It's exactly what the Pharisees are doing as they look back on the prophets that were slain proclaiming the Word of God, saying, no, not us. But they're about to lead the Son of God to the cross. Jesus says, therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? You see, our attempts to absolve ourselves often only proves that we're just the same. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. You see, once again, it was only a matter of days from this point, hours even, until they would shout, crucify him. And all the martyrs that had come before, and from that point on, would continue to kill in order to try and silence others who would proclaim his name. But even we need to ask, how quickly might we turn our backs on him. You see, this was the hypocrisy that Jesus was addressing, and it exists still today. We can't say, oh, here, here is this tomb, this monument to those who used to make these mistakes. No, we must look at the church today ourselves and ask, are we faithfully serving him? To look inward at our own lives and ask, am I practicing what I preach? Is my life winning people to Christ? Am I truly following him, or, or am I a Pharisee? Are there outward signs of religion and and professions of my mouth that do not necessarily equate to a heart that's surrendered to Him? Do I, in fact, love Him with all that I am and because of that, able to love my neighbor as myself? And if you find yourself in a place where you feel as if, man, Lord, that is me, whether all of these things, and you find that it's just been religion, I've never surrendered my life to Christ, or maybe you you find yourself saying, no, these are, I know I know Jesus is my Lord and Savior, but yes, there's this hypocrisy that exists in my life. The final verses should be of encouragement to us. As Jesus declares in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, what we must recognize here, and in, in part of this, yes, there is absolutely fulfillment as it relates to the Jewish people specifically. We'll consider that next week as we start to dive into Matthew 24. But I think what I, what I would love for us to see here today is, is this, that God's heart is for salvation. Luke tells us that it's here that Jesus was weeping as he said these things. Such was his desire even for those who rejected him so fiercely. And what we must understand then is that salvation is possible still today. For those with the heart of a Pharisee, he longs to have you in right relationship with him. He says that as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, what does that communicate? That he longs to have you in a relationship such that you can be close, that he can keep you safe, that he can protect you and provide for you. That's who he is. But we must make no mistake. What he also communicates here is that judgment is coming on those who reject him. And as right as someone may feel in their rejection, the fact is he will be exalted. There will come a day. Salvation is still available today. Judgment will come and he will be exalted. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 tells us, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. And even for the Jewish people, at that time when He comes, they will say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. I'm going to invite the worship team up to close us out in a short song, and I would just ask of us today if necessary let's shed our religious pride let's shed our hypocrisy let's humbly surrender to christ allowing him to transform us and and in our abiding in him what, what does it mean to abide in him it means to be at home with him to, to be to be with him and to remain in him you see there's there's many things in scripture that we can look at and say uh, that, that we can look at and go lord I, I i know you i believe in you but but maybe i don't i don't feel like some of these things lord are are evident in my life that maybe some of these promises are proving true in my life and when we recognize those things it's not to put uh of course, condemnation upon ourselves, but we must ask ourselves, well, am I truly abiding in Him? I think oftentimes we fail to realize what it really means to abide, to surrender our lives wholly to Him, to be willing to look at all of our life and to evaluate it and to say, have I given Him everything? Have I given Him every part? And that when we do, when we abide in Him, well, then we can trust that He will transform us and that we will learn then to love Him truly with all of the our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, all of who we are, and that we may in turn love our neighbors as ourselves without hypocrisy, without exception. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pause here now, Lord, and we thank you once again, Lord, for our time together. What a blessing it is, Lord, for us to come and, and to worship you, to sing your praises and to study your word. 
Lord, we do give you thanks. And Father, I pray that if necessary today, whether for someone who maybe is, is, has yet to make that decision or maybe it's a rededication, that, that they would recognize that by the power of your Spirit today, drawing them unto repentance, that they would say, yes, Lord, this is me. I don't want to pretend any longer, Lord, you know my heart. I want to live for you. And perhaps for each of us, Lord, maybe it's less about salvation and more about, Lord, an area of our life that you desire. The hypocrisy is evident. And Lord, we need to just repent of it and say, Lord, take this. Whatever it may be that each of us today would with genuine heart say, Lord, you can have all of me. Lord, you can have every part of me. I give it to you. Lord, change me and transform me. So Lord, do that work here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.